We'll be reading Jeremiah chapter 10 in the New King James Version this morning. This is my custom. Jeremiah chapter 10. We'll be reading the entirety of the chapter, all 25 verses. And I invite you to follow along in your copy as I read. God's Word declares, Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel, says the Lord. Do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil nor can they do any good. Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. But they are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. Silver is beaten into plates and is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz, the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the metalsmith. Blue and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skillful men, but the Lord is the true God, and he is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom and has stretched out the heavens at his discretion. When he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens and he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. Everyone is dull-hearted and without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image, for his molded image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the maker of all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Gather up your wares from the land, O inhabitant of the fortress. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will throw out at this time the inhabitants of the land and will distress them, that they may find it so. Woe is me for my hurt. My wound is severe, but I say truly, this is an infirmity, and I must bear it. My tent is plundered, and all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me, and they are no more. There is no one to pitch my tent any more or set up my curtains, for the shepherds have become dull-hearted and have not sought the Lord. Therefore they shall not prosper, and all their flocks shall be scattered. Behold, the noise of the report has come. And a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah desolate, a den of jackals. O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. 
O Lord, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your fury on the Gentiles who do not know you, and on the families who do not call on your name. For they have eaten up Jacob, devoured him, and consumed him, and made his dwelling place desolate. Over the past few weeks, we have seen in and looked into the uh, environment that Jeremiah has been called into and the environment that has really sparked God's movement against his own people to bring them into judgment. And it's not because he has abandoned them, but rather because they have abandoned him. And we have seen him take an overview of that with Jeremiah and said, Jeremiah, go out there and walk in the streets of Jerusalem and just see what they're doing. Just look at how they're behaving. Look at the injustice that is going on um, against the widows and orphans. Look at the injustice that's going on against the poor by the, at the hand of the rich. Go out and just look and see how the violence is there and the immorality is there. And in a general terms, Jeremiah was very quick to be able to see the circumstance of his people, how they enslaved each other and abused one another. And now God is very deliberately going through and identifying each category, if you will, of sin um, and, uh, that has really moved him to wrath. And we look specifically at uh, the family that was involved in, and not just one family, but many of the families that were involved in a uh, false worship of the Queen of Heaven and his condemnation that while it was perpetrated largely by the women of Israel, or of Judah rather, that it was given by the permission of the husbands and by the supply of the children that the children themselves would go out there and gather the wood for the fires that some of their own siblings would be burned on. So when we begin to understand that kind of nature of their sin, their familial nature of it, that it was within their very homes. And while you didn't see it on the Temple Mount, um, because on the Temple on Saturday they behaved one way, but in their homes during the week it was a totally different scenario. They were worshiping someone else, some way else. And it wasn't just one or two here and there, but home after home after home. And we tend to think that what happens in churches on Sunday is a reflection of Christianity. And I would contend that it uh, is, but is not the first reflection. The first reflection of the state of Christianity is really in our homes. So we saw that... Uh, that God wanted to point to and to condemn and to call Judah to repentance. You need to get away from that or judgment will come. We saw also over the last couple of weeks um, the eradication of truth from among the people. No one wanted to hear the truth. No one wanted to speak the truth. Uh, truth was not something that was desired. Nobody wanted it. They didn't want to have it shared with them, and so they extracted it from their social psyche, from their thinking. They didn't want to deal with the truth, and uh, the, because the truth just isn't convenient, is it? <laughs> it's never very convenient to hear the truth, and that was the case in Judah in these days and in Jerusalem, and so they, they took away the truth. They didn't want to hear about God of Israel. 
They didn't want to hear about the history there. They didn't want to know the truth. They had their perspectives they wanted to maintain and that uh, the truth interfered with that. And so I don't want to hear it. And they stopped their ears up. They didn't want the truth. They covered their eyes so they wouldn't read the truth. They were fed lies by their own preachers, by their own priests and prophets, by the leaders of their people, not because that's all they knew, but because that's all they wanted to know. So for the prophets and priests to maintain the popularity of the people, they gave them the lies that the people wanted to hear. And in that condition of without truth, now once truth is lost, you have lost the word of the Lord. You have lost contact with the one who is truth, Jesus Christ. And so we saw, as we look around today, that we are more concerned about being politically correct, about not offending people, than we are about telling the truth. That this is defining our society today. That we saw the daughters of Jerusalem in a condition of hopelessness, who couldn't turn to the Lord because they were ignorant of the Lord, because their parents had eradicated the word of the Lord from their society. I don't want to hear that truth. I don't want to know that. I don't want to acknowledge it. I certainly don't want to live that. So it's just easier to stop her it up. And again, we find that in the homes of Israel, in the homes of Judah, that the children were ignorant of it, had grown ignorant of it, to such a point that no one in the land had a copy of the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Bible, of the law. No one had a copy of that. We didn't find anyone reading it. And they discovered it in the temple and there's come some reforms. But they very quickly, once Josiah leaves the scene, abandoned it and returned to their false gods. Because once the truth is lost, even when it is recovered uh, for a brief period of time, it, ha- it, and it is not necessarily appreciated. And it takes time for that to transform a society back to following the ways of the Lord. The ways of darkness and of ignorance have rooted themselves in the hearts and minds of the people. And so God calls them to judgment because they have taken away the word of the Lord. And again, this theme that will be constantly coming before you throughout the book of Jeremiah is they wanted to follow their own hearts. I want to do and believe what I want to do and believe. And God doesn't have my permission to tell me different. This, from early, very earliest passages in Jeremiah, all the way through to the end of Jeremiah, you're going to find it over and over again. They wanted to walk according to the dictates of their own hearts. They wanted to follow their heart. And here we are on Valentine's Day and I'm trying to see if any of you are wearing hearts. Um, they wanted to follow their own heart. Wherever my heart goes, I, if that makes me happy, that must be truth. must be right. Well, no, it's not. Truth is defined by God himself. And it is absolute. It is not changed from person to person. So that's where we have come thus far. That takes us through the end of chapter 9. We come into chapter 10, and we're going to deal with one specific area of sin again in Judah. 
And it is an area that permeates society after society, uh, regardless of how Christian their heritage. We still find it evident, and we find it even within the confines of those who call themselves Christian. Remember, we are dealing not with the Gentiles. We were talking about the way of the Gentiles. We're talking about within the people of God. These have taken root. So we come to chapter 10, and now the next complaint that God has against his people, the, the, the next major kind of sin that he wants to address and the foolishness of it is their idolatry. And so we come to verse 2 and we find that God begins in a very positive way even though there is the negation do not, do not, do not. We think they'll do nots are bad. Um, I hate to tell you this but do nots are very beneficial. Um, if you've ever been involved in any activity the do nots are there to um, <laughs> save us, <laughs> okay? And uh, so when you go out there on a football field, you want a lot of do-nots. And so most of the rules that have been added to sports um, in our day are all do-nots. And you know why? For the safety of those participating. You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, because people have been doing that and been taking men and shortening their careers substantially. So we have here some beginning with a do not. Do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not start out there. Don't even start to investigate it. Don't sit there. Don't don't make yourself smart in their ways because it's already there. And so don't even learn the way of the Gentiles, says in verse 2. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heavens. Um, And this is how the Gentiles were in their ignorance of the truth of God who created the heavens of the earth. They looked to the heavens and the earth. Remember, they worshipped them. And so that moon was a goddess, the, the queen of heaven. The sun was a god. The stars, all of these were their gods, their deities. And so when there was action going on in there, it would strike fear in their hearts and they would be concerned over these things and worried. And and uh, this is not a, a awe-inspiring fear. This is not a respect issue. This is about dismay. This is about despair. I have no hope. Oh, the heavens have falling. It says the Gentiles are afraid of them, and you've learned their way. Don't do it. Why do you want to go into a way that has only brought misery, death, and fear? Why do you want to be educated in that? Let's give a Let's give an examination of the world. Let's look at their beliefs and where they have taken them. Let's consider as societies where it has led them. And as you go through and look at the world, we see where the animistic spiritism of of, uh, tribal people has led them. It has not led them into this wonderful existence um, and I know your naturalist shows on TV, one of you believe that they lived in harmony with nature and that there was this. But you, you'll notice that everywhere modern world goes into there, they quickly adopt our ways because they recognize there was nothing harmonious about living that way. And we look as this is penetrated by this Faith, and I'm, I can even look at those so-called Christian faiths 
that aren't recognizing the truth of God. Remember, we're talking about the people of God who had access to God, had the temple in their midst, and still they had learned the ways not of peace and comfort and deliverance, but the ways of fear, misery, and death. And we can go around the globe and say, what is the end result of this? What is the end result of Islam? Let's be honest. What's the end result of it that we see on our globe today? Is it peace? Is it joy? Is it happiness? Have you, do we see that in their, not, not necessarily on an individual level, I'm looking at a societal level. Is that what you see? It's impact having. No. I've been to India, where it's largely Hindu, and I walk around and I see the impact of their, and it's dismay. I don't want to learn their ways, because I see it. and I see the treatment of people, I see the caste system, I see all of that, and I see this is misery. This is not joy, not comfort, this is not deliverance. And so when God tells us don't learn their ways because their ways don't bring any of the things that satisfy the soul. All they bring is dismay. They bring fear. They bring trouble. They bring worry in your life. They bring all this that, none of, that all of us are trying to escape. And we go after these other ways thinking, oh, they must have it. They must have it. And then we get there and find out that it's not anything like what you thought. I love the people that are sure that, you know, if I go into Eastern religions, I'll say, well, go live in India for a while and see how that's worked out for them. Go live in these places for a while. Go live in Iran for a while. See how that's worked out for them. Go live there. Ladies, if you want to sign up for that job, let's go live there. I've also been to Amsterdam. And one of the things my wife and I, as we walked through Amsterdam, noted is there was no joy. So you think the key is cannabis. You know, you're going to move to Colorado because you know that's going to make you happy up there because now you can smoke it. Um, I've been to Amsterdam and there was no joy. You know what there was? This is what the society in Amsterdam is like. There's great big signs everywhere you go. Beware of pickpocketers. Yeah, you can buy it in that. Yeah, you don't go to a coffee house in Amsterdam because that's where you buy marijuana. If you, you, you don't, that's what they call them. They're coffee houses. So you you don't go there looking for coffee. You're going there to smoke, and uh, there's no joy. And one of the facets of our Christianity is because we follow the one true and living God who is the Redeemer, who, as we're going to see, is the Almighty One, who is the one who is wanting to fulfill that which we seek after. Um, We need to learn His way. And that way will bring that joy, will bring that, that peace, will bring that satisfaction, that contentment that we long for. But inevitably... Because of our heart's condition, we want to reject that because of its demands upon us to humble ourselves and to relegate to him truth instead of to ourselves truth. And so why do we go out there and want to learn the ways of the Gentiles? Not because we rationally looked at that and considered it and seen their ways and where they end, 
Um, the fact is, is that the Canaanites were destroyed by God at the hand of Israelites. The Egyptians were humiliated by God at the calling of one Moses. The fact is, is that, they, that life isn't greener over there. They had it the best. But their hearts looked over and wanted things that would only bring misery and brought misery to those peoples, but rather than being content in what they knew of the one true and living God, they thought he was holding out on them, which is the lie Satan has told from the beginning, hasn't he? Right in the Garden of Eden? Did God really say that? Is he holding out on you? So because they don't trust in him to be good, they want to learn the ways of others. So let's learn their ways. Verse 3, let's look at their customs, the custom of other peoples. Um, we're not going to learn their ways, by the way. Let's just go out and just examine the result of their ways. Let's consider it for a minute. Uh, first of all, uh, there's a worthlessness in what they're doing. It's just vain. It's just, <laughs> okay, you go out on a tree, you cut down a piece of wood, and you carve it into something. Uh, let's make it, let's just, just for the sake of, because of my target audience today is you, uh, let's say we take a piece of wood and we carve it into a, um, a crucifix. Oh, did he say that? Let's just do that, okay? I take a piece of wood, I carve it into a crucifix, and, um, and, and I, I even bejewel it. That is, I put precious metals and stones all over it. And I, I have this bejeweled wooden crucifix that I'm going to carry around with me. I'm going to plant it in my house and, and uh, I'm going to rub it or touch it or face it whenever I have requests. And God says, okay, you've taken your tree down. You worked it with your own hands. You decorated it with stuff that you bought from somewhere else, got from somewhere else, and uh, it can't even hold itself up. Your crucifix can't even carry itself. It can't move around. It can't talk. It can't do it. It can't hold itself perpendicular. It can't do that. You have to fasten it with nails. You've got to put a, a heavy stand on the bottom so it doesn't tip over. You ever notice how strange the human body is in its shape? Why it is that we stand? If you built a, if you ever notice the statues of people, human statues, what do you ever notice at their base? I learned this when I was in uh, Rhodes, Greece, and uh, they talked about the necessity of the bases being this wide because um, the Colossus of Rhodes, one of the wonders of the ancient world, had fallen down. They were talking about the necessity. They're always like this. <laughs> Colossus of Rhodes is like this. Why? Because if you want to build a big, you've got to have a strong base. Um, well, look at your body. How do you stay balanced? Well, because you're a living being. You have all this other stuff going on all the time that is keeping you from falling over, even when your feet are together and you can stand there at attention for lengthy periods of time. Well, more for some of us than others. But uh, for pretty lengthy periods of time, because you're a living being. You build a statue the exact same dimensions of me and you stand it there in stone or wood and it is, it'll topple. It will. Can't stand up. He says they can't stand themselves up. 
They can't move anywhere. You have to carry them wherever they want to go. And yet you think they have power. They don't have the power to maintain themselves upright. They don't have the power to get themselves from there to there. They don't have the power to do anything. And you made it with your own hands. And yet you set it up and you start to worship it. And you start to pray to it. They can't talk to you. They can't do anything. And you're afraid of them. Oh, if I don't satisfy this rock that I painted, it won't rain. Or if I can satisfy that rock, I will be, it will rain. And I will be blessed. Now, he's just asking you to consider this. Just think rationally for a little bit. And everybody thinks that Christian and true faith is irrational and it's not. You've heard me say this a thousand times if once, and that is it is super rational. It's not irrational. It defies the reasoning of men. But even the reasoning of men can help, hopefully, can help us understand that I go out into my backyard, cut down a tree, carve it down, you know, slap a bunch of precious stuff on it, and then nail it to my floor so I won't fall over um, and fasten it, and I have to carry it around if I want that that's my God, and it's controlling everything in the world. Come on. Let's be reasonable here. And yet that's exactly what Israel got caught into, wasn't it? King Ahab comes along and says, we're going to pray to Baal for rain, and we're going to trust in Baal and go after Baal. And he sets up the images all over northern Israel, and what happens? God sends one prophet from the living, true God and says, you think Baal gives you rain? Fine. Um, Here's what my prophet says, no rain. You're not going to have any rain. It did not rain in Israel for three years. Three years. Three years. No rain. This is in Israel. This isn't the Sahara Desert. This isn't over here in Mojave. This is in Israel. Three years. No rain. And the king's response is, you're a troubler of Israel. We are content in, our, in keeping the pig, people ignorant of the one true and living God. We wanted to go after these gods we made, and we claim that they had the ability to make rain. God says, no, they don't, and I'll prove it. I'll withhold rain. You do everything you want to your Baal gods and see what happens. Nothing. Because they have no power. You made them. It's foolishness. It's, it's complete idiocy to think that somehow something that needs my help to be fashioned, it needs my help to get dressed, needs my help to be moved, needs my help to stand straight up, um, is somehow controlling everything else in the universe. Or even just one thing in the universe. It's foolishness. So that's what you want to learn about. And instead, you should be fearing the one true and living God. And he begins to describe this one. But he asks an important question in the midst of preparing to explain to them the one true and living God by asking him this question. Wouldn't you... Isn't it smarter? Isn't it just more reasonable? Isn't it 
doesn't it just make sense that you should fear the one who controls everything? He asks the question in verse 7, Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Since there's no one like him who does stuff, who has done stuff and continues to do stuff, who made everything. So here is the one who made everything that is deserving of your worship. And the question is, why wouldn't you worship him? But over here is something that you made. (laughs) And you're going to attribute to it power. It couldn't make itself, let alone anything else. You reject the God who made everything that is for something that couldn't even make itself and could not and needed your help to make it and your help to move it and your help to, to dress it, your help to, to do anything with it, to keep it standing. Why wouldn't you give to the one who deserves worship what he deserves? And verse 8 answers the question very directly. Because you're dull-hearted and foolish. You're senseless. Just a sensible examination would recognize that you find a rock, you paint some stripes on it, you set it in a little place, you build a little house around it, and you stop by there and offer it flowers and food and, and things like that, that that's not controlling anything in your life except for your own heart because you built it. You are senseless, is the word dull-hearted there. It is, that you, 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 it is the foolishness. It's the, it's the uh, you know, your heart doesn't want to acknowledge the truth because of its demands. Therefore, you have devised your own, and it is obviously ridiculous. But it's preferred. Why? Because of the condition of your heart. You don't want to face the demands that if this God who created everything and is a living God has all authority, then I need to give him his due and that means I need to recognize that he gets to set the rules. And I don't like that because of my own rebellion. And this dull-heartedness and foolishness Talks about the worthlessness again, the vanity. Um, it's just, what can it do for you? You know where the silver came from. You know where the gold came from. You have to hire a guy to do the work. The clothing. You, you, I mean, all of these are the work of men. Verse ten says, "But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, everlasting King, and He doesn't need your help. You need His." <laughs> We need his help. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need us to build him something. He doesn't need it. I think one of the wonderful things about the tabernacle and the temple of, of uh, Israel is that it's not the temple. It wasn't the tabernacle. It was a copy of the tabernacle, the temple. It was a copy of what God had made in heaven without any human help. And he brings Moses up to heaven. He says, hey, look around. This is the temple. Now I want you to go down and make a facsimile 
You're going to make a copy of what you see up here. But recognize that what you make down there isn't really my house. Because this is where the original is. It is just an extension. It is a place that I will visit you at. And so get your skilled craftsman and build that. But don't worship the building. Don't worship the 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 candlestick, don't worship the altar, don't worship any of that stuff. Don't even worship the Ark of the Covenant because all those things you made, they are a reflection of what I have made and I will visit you there, but don't confuse those things with me. Don't even confuse those things with the real deal. They're copies. It's like putting a great big piece of art on there of Mona Lisa. There's the Mona Lisa. Oh, wow, pastor has a... Do you really think Pastor has the Mona Lisa in his basement? Well, no. Obviously, for one thing, I could possibly afford it. For another thing, I don't even like it. Um, but, <laughs> but you would say, well, that's a copy. Obviously, it's a copy. Does it get the same credentials as the original? No. And so... The calling here by God is to say you're focusing on the works of men, of men's hands. But God is the living God, and the work of his hands is you enwraps you. It is all around you, the work of God's hands, and no one can improve upon it. And he's going to go in and talk about the earth, how he made the earth, and the wisdom that is there, and how he, the, he made the heavens. Uh, he makes rain, and it even describes how rain happens way back then. It was through the process of evaporation, condensation, and falling of rain. That's some good science back there, isn't it? That's how it happens. Well, what, where does that process come from? Well, God devised that process. And so this is the living God who's actually doing everything. And he is therefore, not only because he's done all, all of this good for us, but because he will do Judgment. Just as that rock or that crucifix that you built, that idol you made, uh, can't really help you, neither can it really hurt you. (laughs) I guess unless it fell over on you, because you didn't nail it down well enough. It can't really, it's not controlling anything. Well, guess what? The true living God is not only there to help you, he will also be there to judge you. If he is living and can control these things to your benefit, guess what? He can also and will also be your judge. So you can ignore him and say, well, if I ignore God, all you're telling me is if I ignore him, then I won't get his blessings. I said, that's true. That is one half of the equation. The other half of the equation is you will also be a recipient of his wrath. His judgment. If it was just the first, I wouldn't be very adamant that, you know, if you want to be a, have a miserable life, go ahead. You know, if you don't want the blessings of God in your life, um, then I, that's fine. You know, if the, at the end and everyone dies and we just cease to exist like the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, um, I would probably not be very adamant that you got to believe this because um, all it is is just going to, move you from one place to another, you know, you're going to miss out on some blessing. If that's all our faith 
held about God and about a relationship with him. Well, if you trusted God, you get all these blessings. If that's all the problem was, um, I wouldn't be very evangelistic at all, to tell you the truth. Let be, if people want to be miserable and don't get God's blessings, that's their choice. But that's not all there is to the problem of sin and man versus God. And so it moves us. It, it, we recognize that you don't understand. Not only do you not get his blessing, you get his wrath. Because he is deserving of this, and you have robbed him of this respect. You have robbed him of this worship, and therefore he will be your judge, and he will not, no one will be able to stand against his indignation, it says in verse 10. And, and so, uh, it, I'm, it's not that I'm worried that you're not gonna have a good enough life. It's that I'm worried you're gonna have eternal judgment. You're gonna have the wrath of God on your head, and that moves us to recognize that these people need to be saved. And so we use the term salvation, we use the term saving people, um, because instead of the term of blessing people, I'm not here to bless people. Will God bless them? Yes. Is being saved a blessing? Yes. But our priority, the one that moves us to action, is to recognize that people are in peril. They are in deep, deep trouble. And need to be rescued, need to be saved. I go to a swimming pool and I see all these people splashing around and I can say, well, you know, you'd have more fun if you'd do this, this, this. Um, and I'm not going to tell them that because they can, if they don't want to have as much fun as I have at the swimming pool, that's fine. If they want to just not learn how to swim and just kind of go, blah, 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 never going to, you know, if that's how they want to be at the swimming pool, that's fine. You know, if, the, if you don't want to learn to swim and learn different strokes and learn all these cool things of how to swim, that's fine. I'm not going to bother you. But if you're down at the bottom of the pool, go, I gotta do something, don't I? Don't I? She's a lifeguard, so. I gotta get down there and save them. And that's the difference. Once we understand that God is the judge, now we are moved to save people. Because they are under his wrath, they are under his judgment. This is what motivates Jeremiah, the God of all the earth. Not only can he bless you, but he's going to judge you. And that's why I need to, even at the cost of my own safety, at the cost of my own very life, that you might hate me for this, i got to try to rescue me. And by the way, one of the things that whenever you try to rescue a drowning person, you got to deal with is they're going to try to drown you while you're trying to save them. And that's what happens spiritually. We go out there to try to save people, try to rescue them from sin and Satan in this world, and they hate us. In their desperation to maintain themselves, instead of submitting to someone who can rescue them, they end up killing the very one who could save them, who could lead them out of their peril. But we go in nonetheless, don't we? We go in because we say there's a judgment. And this is what God says. It's not that you just lost blessing. It's that you're going to be judged for this. And so will the gods. In verse 11, the gods have not made the heavens and earth, and they are going to perish from the earth from under these heavens. And now let's consider the power of God. And as we've talked, we look at nature and we recognize 
that this is not controlled by a rock or a stick that I carved, that I dressed, that I move around, and that I nail down. And the issue is not whether God has proven himself to be who he is. The issue is your heart. It comes down to it again. Are you willing to acknowledge the truth and let it impact your life? In verse 14, everyone's dull-hearted without knowledge. The metalsmith knows that he fashioned that. And to his shame that he's selling it as a god to be worshipped. He knows there's no breath there, that it's a lie, that it is futile, worthless, it is work of errors, and that it all will come to punishment. That's what the end result is. It will all burn up, it will all be destroyed. The Bible has an interesting term in some of your translations, it'll Talk about it as being a scarecrow. Um, are you afraid of a scarecrow? And maybe we're not very agricultural and don't understand the purpose of a scarecrow. The purpose of a scarecrow is to try to keep the crows scared. Does that help you? It's a scarecrow. And we dress it in human things, so it looks like there's a human walking through the cornfield trying to keep the crows away. And uh, it only works as long as the scent of humans is on that crow, by the way, scarecrow. Um, that's really the only reason it works, is not so much the shape hanging out there and the hat. and the, That's really doesn't... I've seen crows sit on those, so I'm pretty sure it's not the shape. It's the scent. But it says it's just a scarecrow. And why would... You'd be afraid of that. It can't move. It's stuck on a stick and it's filled with straw and there it is. But it only scares the crows away as long as the crows think it's a human. As long as they think it's something else. And it's about your heart. It's about your mind. If you think these things are controlling, yeah, they're going to bring fear into your life, but not peace. But the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, can bring a peace. Because he is not like them. He is not like them at all. And thus the idolatry that Israel and Judah sunk into, he tries to point out its senselessness and its intrinsic dangers that are in that idea of abandoning the one true and living God because you don't like what he demands of you, of abandoning the truth to go after ridiculous things like rocks and stone and sticks and worshiping them. And so God is going to judge, and that is the message Jeremiah has. And the conclusion really... I want to drive to, and I'm skipping some portions of Scripture that are somewhat repetitive, but that theme, um, we've seen his reaction of when God judges, his judgment is, is severe. 
and he rehearses that in verses 19 and 20 about what happens when you're under God's judgment. And when we consider and think about that, now we are more motivated to go out to rescue people, to deliver them, to save them. What does it mean for us? In verse 23, we want to really... Why is the... Why do the people want to abandon truth so quickly? Why are we so apt to put other things of this world and their philosophies and their things before God? Why is it that we chase after the foolishness of this world when we know, if we're just honest, we know it's vacant, worthless, vain? Here's what we were rebelling against. Verse 23 says, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. And that's offensive to me and to you and to everybody you're going to try to save from drowning in their sin. is that you can't come up with the truth on your own. You cannot create truth. You can't direct your own path to please God. You can't make your own window into heaven. It's not in you. You're not capable. You don't know how to save a man. You can't do it, let alone yourself. The way of man is not in himself. We are not the originators of our own life. And we cannot trust ourselves to give the right direction to our life. We cannot trust the work of our hands. We cannot trust the work of our minds. We cannot trust them as the means that I have logically concluded, and I have this, the area of called apologetics is where we try to engage the world, um, and, that, and they say, oh, I've thought through this. And, and Well, you're not going to come to the truth ultimately through that mechanism. We can direct you to it, but we cannot bring it there because it's not in you. Truth isn't derived from your capacity to reason. Truth is derived from God's word, from the Lord himself. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through that way of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jeremiah just says here. It is not in a man. Though you are doing the walking, you are very poor at doing the directing. (laughs) Yep, it's your feet. But you know what? You're going to walk your way into trouble every time. And God compares it to a child. And we've had a few toddlers around here. Um, uh, Samuel's going to be our toddler really soon, I think. Um, But we've watched them. And what did we watch them do? Why do those moms hover over those first few steps? Why do we sit there? Why? Because we know exactly where they're going to walk. They're going to walk right into a wall. If there's a corner anywhere in your house, they will find it with their forehead. Bam. If there's one corner in your house and you've, you know, sawed off all the corners, everything's round, and you left one corner, they will find it and they will fall against it. 
Right? You're all trying to child-proof your houses, and that's how you do it. Everything's got to be a circle. But then you have a problem, because when they come 10-year-olds, you tell them to stand in the corner, there isn't one. So you're back to corners. But um, we think, oh, we can walk. I, I can move my legs, therefore I can direct my path, and I'll figure it out without God. I don't need his truth. But we are like those little toddlers. And here's what we're going to do. We're just going to keep walking into walls. Because it's not in us to direct our path. Is it? It's not in us. So where is it? It is in the Lord. So we go to the Lord. And how does the Lord direct your path? And again, we don't like it. Verse 24, Lord, correct me. What? This is a wonderful word. Lord, correct me. Correct me. Going my way is the wrong way. You see, what most of us want is, we want to do this. This is the toddler stand when they have two parents. Okay? And we're pulling the parents. Most of us, when we come to God, say, hold me up while I decide where I go. Right? That's what most of our perspective of on God's part in our life. But that's not what Jeremiah understood it. He understood that the need is to correct you. Because if you're the one who says, well, God, just help me while I choose my own walk, you're still going to walk yourself right into a wall if you're the one making the choices. When we come to God, it is about correct me. Correct my walk. And that is, grab me by the hand and change my direction. And sometimes he does that gently, and sometimes you've got to jerk them because they're rebellious. And I, had, I had a kid or two that... You all been walking through the store, you see the kid going... And they're pulling away, trying to pull away, trying to pull away. I did that once. And actually, I didn't pull. She pulled. And we were at the emergency room. I'm picking up my front row kids here this morning. Julie, you're next. Correct me, Lord. And we don't want to be corrected. Because fundamentally, we don't think we're wrong. We don't believe verse 23, and therefore we don't want to accept verse 24. And this is the problem why we want to go to, and we're willing to do the stupidest thing and follow an idol of our own devising. Because we don't want to be corrected by God and change our life course. We want him to hold us up and we want him to, to, you know, throw ice cream in our path every now and then. And we want that, but we still want to make the decisions of where we should go and how. And we won't allow him to be God and to correct us. But the Jeremiah recognizes that that's the problem. And so he comes to us and, and first on a personal level and then as a people of God, we need to come to God and say, correct us where we, where we mess up. Correct us. Because we don't necessarily know the right way to go. We cannot generate truth in our own hearts. It is necessary for God to bring truth there and then it is for us to accept it or reject it. 
And Jeremiah's words here are the words of one who has accepted the truth of God and said, Lord, correct me. Oh, what humility it takes to be able to say, Lord, correct me. This is repentance. I'm going the wrong way. God, correct me. And repentance starts by understanding that I am not able to figure this out and to fix it myself. My way is not God's way. I am not the ruler of all and the creator of all that existed. And I better listen to his way. Correct me, Lord. And then the beauty on the other side of that heart change is given to us. And that is, he'll correct you with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Um, The beauty on the other side of salvation is that now we say, oh, why didn't I do this a long time ago? Because in God's, walking God's way, there is peace and joy. There's satisfaction. There's, there is fulfillment. There is, there is, I, I am delivered. I'm saved. I'm safe. I am right. And, and there's justice here. And the Lord comes to correct us not to our destruction, but rather to our ultimate benefit. And his corrective action is not one that is done in anger, but in done in love. If he had done it in anger, it would destroy us as he will those who reject him. So we have this calling. It's just reasonable for us to, if you, to know that idols are stupid. They don't control anything. We made them. But it is pressing us to decision when we realize that we're not just missing out on blessing. We are facing judgment. I got to do something. And this is what must be done. We must be ready to recognize that truth is not in here. Truth is in him. It's in here. I am not the measure of truth. God is. And this is his word. Now I come to God and say, correct me. That's an attitude shift. That's repentance. That's recognizing, God, I've gone the wrong way. Please help me go the right way. Correct me. Not because you're angry with me but, but, and to annihilate me, but because you, I know that you're a benevolent, a loving God, and you will seek my benefit. Lord, correct me. Discipline me. Bring me into your righteousness. Let me follow your ways and not my own. And then you should and will pour out your fury on those that don't know you, those that won't call on your name, those who have judged wrongly who the God of all the earth is. So our invitation to you and our, my challenge to you is, is, are we described by verse 23 and 24? Or is it more a 
apt that we are described by the term of dull-hearted and foolish. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. You're dull-hearted and foolish, or you understand that the truth isn't in you, and you need the Lord to correct your path. Good challenge. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word and for your truth. And Lord, we know because your word has told us and we know because we have seen it in our lives and our society historically and is evident all around us that our hearts are prone to want to glorify ourselves and those things that we have made that we claim as our own. But Lord, these are the ways of the Gentiles and we have learned them well. And for this, we are sorry. And Lord, I pray that you might not only guard us from learning their ways and knowing them, but that you might also work in us to reveal your truth to us as you have this morning, to persist in that, in your grace and mercy toward us. Lord, that you might find us not dull-hearted, You would find us not foolish, but wise and willing to receive your instruction, even when it means that we have to radically sometimes change our ways. Lord, correct us as a loving Father. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.